Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with today's indictment of Donald Trump before a federal magistrate in Washington, D.C., where he pleaded not guilty to four counts of conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government, of denying U.S. citizens their right to vote, and obstructing the handover of the presidency to its rightful winner. Joining us is Frederick Barron, who formerly served as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. He also served as an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia's U.S. Attorney's Office, as well as Counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Then we'll look into the commanding role Trump plays over the press, which follows his antics and outrages breathlessly as this pathological narcissist demands attention and gets free advertising for his campaign. We'll discuss how, on the evening of Trump's latest indictment, he had dinner with the top executives at Fox News, who came begging as their network parrots his talking points that Biden has weaponized the government against Trump's free speech rights. Joining us is Timothy Carr, who is the campaign director for free speech and the SaveTheInternet.com coalition. He also writes for the Huffington Post and on his personal blog, MediaCitizen.com, and he has an article to Common Dreams, Elon Musk is absolutely an enemy of free speech. Then finally we get an update on the coup in Niger as the deadline for the general who led the coup to release the democratically elected leader by Sunday approaches. Joining us is Dr. Olayinka Ajala, a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Heeds Beckett's University in the UK, where he teaches in the area of peace and security, terrorism and counterterrorism, formation of insurgent groups, climate change and sustainable development, especially in West Africa and the Sahel. In working with communities in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria, his work focuses on how insurgencies are formed and how addressing human security issues could reduce violent conflict. He consults with the Ministry of Defence of the United Kingdom, and we will discuss his article at the conversation, What Caused the Coup in Niger? An expert outlines three driving factors. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Frederick Barron, who formerly serves as Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office for National Security in the Department of Justice. He also served as an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia in the U.S. Attorney's Office, as well as Counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. Welcome to Background Briefing, Frederick Barron. Good to be with you, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us, Frederick. And today, former President Donald Trump pled not guilty to four federal charges uh, before a magistrate in federal court in Washington, D.C. He was charged um, for conspiracy to defraud the United States, 
conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding, obstruction of an attempt to obstruct an official proceeding, and conspiracy against rights. So uh, this could not get more serious. Uh, would you agree? I would certainly agree. And just to help spell out what those charges mean, they all revolve around <clears throat> a couple of very simple principles. Uh, the conspiracy to defraud is conspiracy to overturn the proper 20, uh, 2020 election results. The uh, conspiracies to obstruct uh, relate to the January 6th uh, vote certification process at the Capitol. Uh, one count uh, says there was a conspiracy to obstruct that vote certification process. The other related count uh, alleges that they, they actually did succeed, at least in part, in obstructing that vote certification process. And then the final count uh, that relates to uh, violation of rights is uh, specific to uh, the right to vote, that is conspiring to violate the right to have votes properly counted um, through the scheme that's alleged to uh, put together false electors and, uh, and change the results of the election. But actually, what happened today is that Donald Trump was placed under arrest and arraigned in a court and fingerprinted for the third time in four months. So that's a serious enough for any U.S. citizen, but it's particularly extraordinary for a former president of the United States. Right. This is uh, absolutely an historic day in U.S. history because there, there has never been a criminal case that's been brought uh, that raises issues as profound as these issues for the entire uh, U.S. governmental system. Uh, the the uh, direct challenge to uh, the Constitution and to the system of the democracy that we've had since the beginning. So, so um, this is truly an extraordinary set of charges. Uh, no one ever would have thought before the advent of Donald Trump that we would uh, be here now. Uh, and, and now, um, after uh, years of investigation and posturing, um, there's there's an actual criminal case uh, that will that uh, poses a day of reckoning uh, whenever the trial takes place. So, Frederick, there's Trump's legal team and and Fox News keep trying to pass this off as a First Amendment issue that's about freedom of speech, about Trump's freedom of speech. And I can't, for the life of me, believe that 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 could ever fly because. I mean, if a mafia mob boss is caught on tape ordering the murder of somebody, he can't then go into federal court and say that's a First Amendment and offer a First Amendment defense that, you know, his First Amendment rights are being infringed upon. It's not your words that count. It's your deeds, surely. And, and it's the purpose of the words and... Uh, the knowledge that lies behind the word. So on the one hand, even Jack Smith in the indictment acknowledges very succinctly that there's no dispute that Donald Trump has free speech rights, and, and they're very broad, and he even has a, a right to make an unwitting misstatement of facts. On the other hand, even uh, former Attorney General Bill Barr, who was Trump's own Attorney General, said as recently as last night, there's no free pass 
under the criminal law for a knowing false statement that that is for a criminal purpose. In other words, he used the example that almost all frauds and almost all criminal conspiracies involve a certain amount of speech. Uh, that the speech is not protected if the person who's uttering the words is is uttering them for the purpose of advancing the perpetration of a crime. If there's a, if there's a criminal purpose, and if if in some instances they know that what they're saying is either for a criminal purpose or that it's untrue, and it's and and it's also intended to achieve a criminal purpose, they're in trouble under the law, and and the freedom of speech will not uh, get them off the hook. So Republicans say that there's nothing new in these indictments. And they say that the timing of, the, of this whole prosecution is political. And in fact, Speaker McCarthy said that the indictments are, are a way to take the Hunter Biden story off the headlines and distract us. There's nothing to the Hunter, story, Hunter Biden story, but it seems like there's a hell of a lot to, to the Donald Trump story. Right. And uh, all of this is um, more political smoke and mirrors that you can count on continuing straight through this entire criminal process uh, up to and including a trial because there would likely be appeals even after a trial. But the, the fact here is that uh, Donald Trump uh, was put on notice way back before January 6th and on January 6th by attorneys at the top of his own administration, that he was venturing into uh, criminal territory, that there were all kinds of legal violations that uh, were being committed by the fake elector scheme, that uh, uh, Vice President Pence did not have the authority, the legal authority, to change the result of the election, as Donald Trump continued to maintain, even, even after he knew that that was not true. And so... Uh, Trump has known for a long, long time that there was every likelihood that these events would be investigated thoroughly, uh, and and it takes a great amount of time to put all these pieces together. But uh, but there's nothing political about this timing. Uh, indeed, it might have been uh, better politically to do it much earlier. But be that as it may, this is simply a a methodical. A pursuit of the largest criminal investigation that's ever existed at the Department of Justice. And after taking a long time to put it together and starting way, way before Donald uh, Trump announced that he was running for president again, uh, they brought out the indictment at the time when all the facts came together, and, and not for political reasons, but, but because it was the right moment uh, to, to feel uh, comfortable that every element of this uh, indictment could be uh, proven in court later beyond a reasonable doubt. So Trump's legal team are going to argue, apparently, that everything Trump did was on the advice of counsel. Is that going to fly, given the quality of the counsel he was getting? Yeah, the answer is no. And and the, the deep irony here is, um, while Trump can point to some... Uh, relatively crazy legal theories that were advanced by some of his lawyers and then later knocked down by various federal judges in every single case that Trump filed uh, to challenge elections in in any uh, state. Uh, But on top of that, he actually got correct legal advice, which is all, much of which is laid out in this indictment. 
advice from his own senior legal officials, which he then ignored. So, for example, Attorney General Barr has gone public saying that he told uh, uh, Trump that the, the notion that there was outcome determinative level of fraud that could have changed the result of the election was absolute BS. Uh, and Barr said that while he was still in office, and then he's repeated it since then. Um, on January 3, uh, Trump convened a meeting with the hierarchy of the Justice Department after Barr had left. So he, was, he had in his office uh, acting Attorney General Rosen, acting Deputy Attorney General Donahue, uh, and White House Counsel Cipollone and, and White House Deputy Counsel Hirschman. And they all uh, were advising him, both in that meeting and at other times, that, um, number one, the, there wasn't any proof of uh, any kind of level of fraud that remotely approached the level that would have changed the result of the election. And number two, they had advised him that it was legally incorrect uh, to, uh, to assert that Mike Pence had the authority to use his ceremonial uh, electoral college vote counting role to, uh, to decide to unilaterally change the result of a U.S. presidential election. And Trump kept asserting that the election was stolen and that Pence had that authority long after he'd heard even from the top lawyers in, in his own uh, administration. Uh, and in, indeed, uh, they, they confronted him in a, in a uh, really raucous meeting on the evening of January 3 because uh, Trump was threatening to replace them. If they didn't play ball with him and change their legal views, he was going to replace them with Jeffrey Clark, who was, at a, who was sitting in the room, but was at a lower level in the justice hierarchy than everyone else sitting in the room. And uh, Trump only backed off when uh, the acting attorney general, the acting deputy attorney general, the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, and his own White House counsel all indicated to him that there would be mass resignations at the Department of Justice if he persisted in, in with these um, legal, uh, I'm sorry, if he persisted in changing the hierarchy at the Justice Department. And then the head of the Office of Legal Counsel, and this is the last point on, the, on relying on advice of counsel, the head of the Office of Legal Counsel at the Justice Department, who is the, the uh, assistant attorney general who writes legal opinions for the government, he told Trump sitting in the meeting that it was incorrect to think that he could advise Mike Pence that he had the authority to simply change the result of the election. And Trump's response to that legal, if he had relied on that legal advice, he wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But in, instead of relying on that legal advice, uh, Trump said, uh, no one in this room speaks to the vice president except me. I will speak to the vice president, meaning he was, he was clearly uh, telling them back off. And regardless of the legal advice I've actually been given, I'm going to tell Mike Pence he has uh, this authority. And then regardless of resistance that Mike Pence raised and Mike Pence's own lawyers raised, uh, Trump insisted on going public on January 6th and whipping up the mob with the notion that he knew was false, that Mike Pence had the authority to change the election and, and that the crowd should, should uh, be essentially uh, putting his life at risk unless he changed his mind and did change the results of the election. 
And indeed, that January 3rd meeting was more of a shouting match, as we learned from the January 6th hearings. And, exactly. uh, and in fact, uh, Mike Pence has come public in the last few days referring to Trump's lawyers, not the professionals that you mentioned, but the people that Mike Pence referred to as Trump's crackpot lawyers. So the adults yeah, tried to prevail, but at the, at the end of the day, Trump went with the crackpots. So how yeah, about... And, uh, w- one other, on that same point, um, the indictment shows that uh, Mike Pence has given at least enough information to the prosecutors about the facts of who said what when, so that they could uh, include in the indictment the story that Trump persisted time after time after time in pursuing Mike Pence after he'd been told that uh, Mike Pence did not, uh, told by his own lawyers that Mike Pence did not have this authority to change the election. He kept pursuing and pushing uh, Pence, and then Pence indicated to the president that his lawyer said uh, that he didn't have that authority and he wasn't going to change his mind. And at one point then Pence quotes the president apparently in Pence's own notes as saying, uh, Mike, you're too honest. Um, and that's a, a devastating uh, remark in a, in a criminal uh, trial of this type. So clearly the Trump defense and what we've seen on their appearances on Fox News, they're trying to say that there was no criminal intent on Trump's part because he actually believed in his own big lie, right, that there was an election fraud and he'd won and Biden hadn't. And how is that argument going to stand up? Because it looks as if what Jack Smith has done is puncture that totally by making it clear that on a number of occasions Trump was told by senior officials and he had he agreed with them and he even said a couple of times himself that he'd lost the elections. So is that going to fly? Uh, yeah, you, ha- you have your, your finger on the most important proof points that are in the indictment and will be advanced at the trial to show that Donald Trump cannot maintain that gee, I honestly believe the election was stolen and that there was enough fraud in enough states that it would have changed the outcome of the election. The reason is that, uh, for example, in the indictment, uh, Arizona is one of those states where the election was really close. Uh, Trump pressed the Arizona Speaker of the House, and and Giuliani uh, did also, uh, to, in, in effect, uh, back the fake elector scheme. And instead what happened was the Republican Speaker of the House, Rusty Bowers, in Arizona, told Trump uh, that he would not do that. And then he made a statement saying, the law does not authorize the legislature to reverse the results of an election. I voted for President Trump, but I cannot and will not entertain a suggestion that we violate current law to change the outcome of a certified election. Uh, and, and then uh, next example was in Georgia, where they have Trump on the famous video, the famous tape, uh, where he's pressing the Secretary of State, Brad Raffensperger, uh, to find fraud where fraud does not exist. And uh, at the end of a long telephone call where Raffensperger and his lawyer uh, refuted every single allegation of fraud that Trump tried to throw at them so that Trump again was put on notice that the, the fraud that, that, that was a myth in the press did not exist at all. 
And then at the end, uh, Raffensperger offered to send Trump a link to a video that would disprove the claims that he was hearing from Rudy Giuliani. And Trump's response, instead of, instead of Trump saying, oh, great, I, wa- I do want to get at the truth, so please send me that link, instead, uh, the indictment says Trump's response was, I don't care about a link. I don't need it. I, I have uh, a much better link, meaning Trump was taking a see no evil, hear no evil response uh, and knowing that, again, the people on the ground in Georgia were telling him there was no such fraud that would change the result. He just wanted to persist. And then the last example uh, along this line uh, is uh, in the state of Michigan, where, again, the election was close. Uh, Trump and Giuliani were pressing the Michigan state uh, legislature hard to uh, allege that there was enough indication of fraud that uh, the the whole, the whole election should be es- essentially the election certification should be suspended while they review the allegations of fraud and and in fact uh, what happened there was was that um, the Michigan uh, 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 speaker the, the speaker of the house. And, and the majority leader in Michigan both indicated that we have not received evidence of fraud on a scale that would change the outcome of the election in Michigan. And, and then uh, the, the Michigan Republican House Speaker went on to make a public statement saying, I fought hard for President Trump. Nobody wanted him to win more than me. But I can't fathom risking our norms, traditions, and institutions to pass a resolution retroactively changing the electors for Trump, uh, simply because some think there may have been enough widespread fraud to give him the win. That's unprecedented. Uh, I fear we'd lose our country forever. This truly would bring mutually assured destruction for every future election in regard to the Electoral College. And I can't stand for that. So so, uh, there are more states... Uh, named and more evidence given in the indictment, but those are are stunning examples of the fact that Trump cannot say he he had every reason to believe that there was fraud at the point when he was whipping up the crowd on January 6th and pressing Mike Trump, uh, Mike Mike Pence, uh, because uh, in every state where he was alleging fraud, he and his people, like Giuliani, were hearing firsthand from the Republicans in the state that there was no fraud. Well, Frederick Barron, I thank you so much for joining us. I appreciate your briefing on this, today's historical events. Thanks, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Frederick Barron, who formerly served as an Associate Deputy Attorney General, Special Assistant to the Attorney General, and Director of the Executive Office of National Security in the Department of Justice. He also served as an Assistant U.S. Attorney in the District of Columbia's U.S. Attorney's Office and was a counsel to the Senate Select Committee on Intelligence. We're going to take a restation break. We're back looking to the commanding role Trump plays over the press, which follows his antics and outrageous breathlessly as this pathological narcissist demands attention and gets free advertising for his campaign.
Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Timothy Carr, who's the campaign director for Free Press and the SaveTheInternet.com coalition. He also writes for the Huffington Post and his personal blog, MediaCitizen.com. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Elon Musk is Absolutely an Enemy of Free Speech. Welcome to Background Briefing, Timothy Carr. Thanks for having me on, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, Donald Trump was arraigned today uh, in federal court in in Washington, D.C. He pled not guilty uh, and but agreed to the bail conditions. And it was an extraordinary event in the sense that it's the third arraignment of Donald Trump, having been essentially arrested three times, fingerprinted three times. And I wonder if whether or not enough of the population uh, understanding that what he's really charged with here that should be very personal and should get home to them, to the average citizen, is that he tried to take away your vote. I mean, maybe if you voted Republican, he didn't take away your vote, but anybody else, he did. And I don't see that as something to celebrate. No, certainly not. Um, it's it's a very grave moment for the United States and and our democracy, clearly, uh, to have a president try to uh, overtake a democratic decision and seize power. Um, and I think the concern that I have and others have is that maybe the media isn't doing a good enough job of portraying how serious this is. And also really, really looking what's at stake here. I think, you know, when during, you know, Trump's many arraignments and including this one, I've noticed that the press has devoted a lot of time to the process, right? Uh, They had helicopters trailing Trump's motorcade as he drove in from the airport to be arraigned. Um, And uh, and you have to ask yourself, like, is that really the media's role to kind of turn this into some kind of a drama, or should they actually be doing reporting, not on the movement of his motorcade so much, but on what's in the indictment? What does that mean? Uh, What are the stakes? Uh, How is this an issue that's important for our democracy and the future of the United States? Well, what I also find extraordinary, Tim, is that on the very evening of the indictments on Tuesday, Donald Trump had dinner that evening with the top executives at Fox News who wanted him to consider attending the first Republican primary debate later this month, Um, which indicates to me, of course, and to anybody I think that's (laughs) paying attention, that Trump has leverage over Fox News. I mean, Murdoch may have decided he doesn't like him anymore, and he and he had a brief romance with DeSantis, and he's, now he's realized DeSantis is, is there's less to DeSantis than meets the eye. Um, now he's sort of toying with the idea of uh, Glenn Youngkin. But the point is, surely, that Trump has leverage over them. And by the way, it's hardly a coincidence that they, they meet, the top people at Fox meet with Trump on the very evening of the indictment, and immediately Fox News and Trump's people have exactly the same mantra, which is this is all about free speech and the First Amendment. So the coordination is pretty glaring. Yeah, I mean, I think it's clear and that they were hammering on this. This is an attack on free. This is an attack on free speech talking point almost across all right wing media. 
uh, gives you some sense of, of the level of coordination. And just to respond to that, of course, if you read the indictment, it's very clear in the very first paragraphs that this is not about anything that Trump said. It's about what he's actually done with his co-conspirators in an attempt to overthrow a democratically elected government. It's not just that he said that he won the election and that he told the big lie, which of course is not true. Um, that's why we call it the big lie. Um, but he also they acted upon it in having some of his co-conspirators arrange for false electors, for example. These are acts that are illegal under the law. The First Amendment doesn't shield a defendant from those sorts of acts. So obviously that talking point was bogus. But to your point that it was it was echoed across right wing media is interesting because it's almost as if there are two parallel universes here in the media. One is the one that supports Trump, um, which believes that there is uh, there is uh, an abuse of power, but it's an abuse of power in the hands of our current president, Joe Biden, and not an abuse of power uh, by the former president, uh, Donald Trump. And and so um, the media, and it's not just right-wing media, the media in, in its entirety, largely commercial media, is complicit in a lot of ways because the reason I think that you see Fox pivoting away from DeSantis to Trump is because they're loyal they want to appease their viewership and polling shows that Fox News viewers and the GOP uh, members of the Republican Party more generally support Donald Trump. So it behooves Fox, at least in their thinking, to espouse pro-Trump talking points because they don't want to drive away viewers. This, of course, got them into a lot of trouble um, during the Dominion case from the previous election uh, when they knew that the big lie was a lie and yet they continued to perpetuate that lie and even said that there was a conspiracy amongst the makers of Dominion voting machines um, to actually turn Trump votes into Biden votes. So so they were burned. They've had to pay $787.5 million. Well, they haven't paid it yet, but they were, they were fined $787.5 million or the settlement had, was that amount. It's a lot of money. Um, for telling a lie, it feels in a lot of ways that that they're going down the same path here by telling this sort of by reciting this alternative reality about who's really at guilt here or what really happened or didn't happen uh, in the run up to January 6. So the Murdochs have to appease the monster they created. They do. And it's really it, what's interesting, though, is that it's as I said, you know, there's there are commercial incentives amongst more mainstream media to cover Trump. And, you know, after 2016, you had CNN, for example, um, devoting most of their coverage, or during 2016, devoting most of their coverage to uh, uh, Donald Trump, despite the fact that there were a dozen other Republican candidates in the race at the time. I know that there's a point where they left their cameras running, you know, as his campaign jet, you know, taxied down the runway um, uh, you know, and and they covered almost every rally that he had. That was CNN. CNN, I think some people would say, is a centrist, politically centrist news organization. But but it's in their interest to cover Trump because they thought that was a, a compelling story. Um, and even like CBS, the then president of CBS, Les Moonves, said that while Trump may be 
bad for America. He's good for CBS because he drove ratings. It's, it's the problem of media coverage of elections is that they often treat it as a drama or as a sporting event. You know, um, NYU professor Jay Rosen said, has lambasted the media for covering the horse race. What he says is, you know, you should cover what's at stake and not the odds, which is to say, rather than treating elections like a sporting event, from which there aren't, aren't a lot of consequences aside from the team itself, um, instead of as an election that has direct bearing and direct consequences on the future of our country. And so I, they could do better this time around by talking more about what's at stake in related to this indictment and what's at stake going forward as, uh, as we see an election approaching. Uh, the court um, seems like they're on track to try this case before that. You know, all of those things that are in play, and I think the media has an important role to play and educating the American public about what's really at stake here and not, you know, how many percentage points Trump may be ahead of his opponents. Well, I, you know, wanted to find out what was happening with the arraignment and I, all I saw was what you just described, Tim, was a convoy of SUVs and a, a lot of babbling. But you see what's happening and it, the mainstream press gave Trump $5 billion worth of free advertising in 2016 and it's still happening today and you know trump is the one thing he's skilled at is getting attention because he's absolutely a pathological narcissist who demands attention like terrorists demand attention uh, and giving him the presidency has only made him incredibly a thousand times worse the power of the presidency in the hands of a, of a pathological narcissist is just beyond belief how much we're reaping the consequences. So yeah. there has to be some I mean, it, kind it, it, of adult intervention here with the press <laughs> as a whole, just saying, you know, please don't feed the machine. You know, just, let's just have a normal election where you talk about policies and plans and programs and platforms of the candidates. Right. I mean, it's interesting that Trump has often called the media the enemy of the American people, but really he wouldn't exist without the, the media. The media has handed the Trump myth um, to the American people on a silver platter. And it's worth noting that Jeff Zucker, who was the uh, was the head of CNN at the time of the 2016 elections, it was also previously with NBC when he greenlit The Apprentice. The Apprentice, of course, a reality TV show that portrayed Donald Trump not as a bankrupt and failed businessman that he was, but as this powerful and decisive business magnet. And that myth, which was burnished by mainstream media and by NBC, um, helped carry uh, Trump to his early successes in the 2016 election. No, there's no question that that is uh, the way that his supporters in the MAGA world see him as a successful businessman, you know, with a <laughs> a wife who um, is attractive. Uh, we won't get into her former profession before uh, she became the first lady at the threat of being sued. But the whole thing is so amazingly tawdry. But it's not going away. So just in closing, Tim, what... Can we do to stop the fact that we are going to be continually distracted by this man who knows how to manipulate the media and demand attention? 
Well, I think it's helpful to to be constantly aware of the role that the media play in elections and to hold the media accountable when they fall down. And, and again, I think we have to be very cognizant of their tendency to cover these uh, these campaigns and these elections as if, as though they're sporting events. Uh, the media's role is not to do that. The media's role is to explain what the candidate's positions are and what's at stake should one of them become elected. And in this election, we have a candidate running who is uh, under indictment as of today he was arraigned for attempting to overthrow uh, a democratic election. So that's an important part of the story. The media needs to tell it. Right. Yes. He was arraigned today by the very government that he tried to overthrow. So I thank you for joining us, uh, Timothy Carr. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Timothy Carr, who's a campaign director for Free Press and the Save the Internet.com coalition. He also writes for the Huffington Post and on his personal blog, MediaCitizen.com. And he has an article at Common Dreams, Elon Musk is absolutely an enemy of free speech. We're going to take a brief station break and back with an update on the coup in Niger as the deadline for the general who led the coup to release the democratically elected leader by Sunday approaches. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Dr. Olayinka Ajala, a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Leeds Beckett University in the UK, where he teaches in the areas of peace and security, terrorism and counterterrorism, formation of insurgent groups, climate change, and sustainable development, especially in West Africa and the Sahel. In working with communities in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria, his work focuses on how insurgencies are formed and how addressing human security issues could reduce violent conflict. He consults for the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom and has an article at the conversation, What Caused the Coup in Niger? An expert outlines three driving factors. Welcome to Background Briefing. Olayinka Ajala. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Well, thanks for joining us. And as your article points out, at an emergency meeting in Ajuba, Nigeria, on the 30th of July, the Economic Community of West African States, ECOWAS, demanded the immediate release and reinstatement of Niger's elected president, Mohamed Bazoum. Uh, he's been held by the military since July the 19th. Now, the deadline, they gave uh, General Chiani a week to reverse the coup, and that week will be up on Sunday, will it not, uh, Dr. Ajala? So what do you expect to happen on Sunday? Well, um, yesterday there was um, uh, the spokesman, the spokesperson for ECOWAS said that the use of force will be uh, the very last uh, option, that it will be the, the very last result. So um, I'm thinking the, the plan here is to give a little bit more of time for diplomacy. I don't think um, anything is going to happen on Sunday if the, um, the military regime do not hand over power back to Basum. So 
they are still trying to give room for diplomacy. Yesterday, the former military president of Nigeria, Abdul Salami Abubakar, was in uh, it was in the J together with the Sultan of Sokoto, one of the prominent um, Islamic um, leaders in the region, um, for dialogue um, to speak uh, with some of these um, people. So they are still looking for every other opportunity or avenue to resolve the problem without the use of force. And of course, uh, President Biden has called for the coup plotters and General Chiani to step down and resume the uh, government of the elected government of Bazoumi. And but Anthony Blinken, the Secretary of State, has, has been in conversation with Bazoumi. So he's apparently, even if he's under house arrest, he's at least able to communicate, right? Yes, he's able to communicate. Um, he, he had a meeting with um, the president of Chad as well on Tuesday, and the picture was widely circulated. He was there smiling in the picture. So he's been given access to um, other leaders um, in Ecuador. So he, he's fine and he's, um, he's, he's allowed to speak to people outside of the country. So what I find uh, interesting about this, Dr. Ajala, is that the young people in Niger have been demonstrating in favor of the coup. They've been waving Russian flags and, and shouting, long live Putin and long live the Wagner group. So is that what's happening, that there's a rejection of France, the colonial power, and there's a sense amongst, I don't know what percentage of people in Niger, but uh, it seems like a reasonable percentage want to embrace Russia? Not necessarily. Um, not necessarily. Uh, what you see on TV is just a section of um, what is happening in Naomi. The situation is quite different um, in some other parts of the country. I've spoken with people in the country. And what I was told um, yesterday night and this morning is that um, it's almost half and half. Um, there are still a large number of people who are opposed military rule. They, they, they've enjoyed 10 years of democracy and they don't want to go back to military rule. So, but they will not be able to come out again at the moment to protest in support because of the large military presence um, in Naomi and also uh, because they would be afraid to, you know, to have confrontations with the, the other people protesting. So it's um, not as if um, most of the people in the country um, accept this. Um, a large number of people. So what I'm hearing is that it's almost half and half. But the, 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 there is a lot of resentment for um, France. The, the France is a, it's, it's a key. Uh, there's a problem with France. Many of the people feel they've not really benefited under the French, uh, with, uh, with the par partnership with France. Uh, they feel that um, despite the large number of French troops in the country, Insurgents are still running riots and killing people on almost a daily basis. So they're asking themselves, what's the point of this relationship? And then again, it's uh, it's, it's a tricky one because not just with Niger, even with Nigeria, there's a problem with um, the issue of uh, human rights in the fight against insurgency. So, for instance, in 2015, the United States um, put an arms embargo on Nigeria because um, of human rights abuses as published by Amnesty International. And this, this um, actually pushed Nigeria to um, buying weapons from Russia. 
if you look at Nigeria, for instance, Nigeria has never bought Russia um, weapons from Russia until 1915, since they returned to democracy. So the issue of human rights um, has curtailed the military, not just the Nigerian military, the military in the region from going all out against insurgents. But the people don't understand that. The people think they don't have the capacity and um, maybe Wagner and Russia would do better. And then buying weapons from Russia does not come with any strings attached. You can use them the way you like. So there are lots of complexities in terms of um, the rejection of, of, of France um, and um, foreign troops here in the country, in Niger. Well, Russia is, has able to exploit the notion that they're, they're not a colonial power, even though the Soviet Union was a colonial operation and and the control of uh, of Eastern Europe through the Warsaw Pact was clearly a colonial operation. But for some reason or other, a lot of the African countries, and particularly those in the Sahel, after all, the, there are military regimes in Guinea, Mali, and Burkina Faso right next door. And the leader of Burkina Faso was standing next to uh, Vladimir Putin in in the the sort of group photograph that was taken at the recent uh, Africa summit in St. Petersburg. And the head of Burkina Faso, the military leader, said on Sputnik, the Russian media outlet, thank God Russia is a country that refuses nothing. In fact, everything we want to buy, Russia agrees to sell us. This is not the case with other countries. So that's what you've just basically told us about Nigeria, right? That Russia is, a, is an arms exporter. Yeah, absolutely. And that was exactly what happened in 2015 with Nigeria. Nigeria um, tried to buy Apache helicopters uh, from America, but America refused to sell these weapons to them because they said uh, due to the human rights issues with Nigeria, they are not sure the weapons would not be used uh, to commit human rights atrocities. But Russia, China, they don't care about that. They'll send the weapons and um, the countries will go for it because they need these weapons. Uh, Burkina Faso is suffering seriously now. As we speak now, more than 50% of the country has been taken over by insurgent groups. So they need these weapons. And um, the reluctance of the West, um, um, the US, France, and their um, traditional allies to sell some of these weapons to them based on human rights issues has actually is one of the reasons that is drawing them away and drawing them towards Russia and China. But there is a US military base in Niger, right? With 1,100... American soldiers, and they're there presumably, and the French were there as well, to combat the insurgents, which are Al-Qaeda, Islamic State, and Boko Haram, right? Yes, there is. Um, interestingly, um, the U.S., they have one of the largest drone bays uh, outside of America in Agadez. Um, it was opened, I think, in um, 2019 or 2020, thereabouts. So it was, um, and this is one of the issues. Um, Within the country, within the military and within um, even the populace in the country, there is this feeling that despite the large number of these troops, there is no real sense that the war against insurgency is being won. And that is one of the reasons why they think a lot of people, especially the young people, feel, um, well, if France is not helping us, let's try Russia. Why not? Um, uh, they, they've been given the, the impression that... Um, um, Wagner will do better, which I doubt, but that's the impression that um, they have that, well, if we've had this partnership for a very long time 
and it's not really yielded anything significantly, uh, despite the base, the military bases, a large number of personnel, over 1,500 French personnel, 1,100 U.S. personnel. Uh, those are the numbers we know. There might be more than that. Special forces might be there. So the people, they don't see any commiserate um, um, results in terms of um, weakening the insurgent groups. They see carrier attacks on daily, if not weekly basis. So this is one reason why, and that was the reason given by the um, General Tiani and the other coup plotters. Insecurity was one of the things they mentioned in their statement when they took over power. But General Tiani is using his military to control a country, not to fight the insurgents, right? I mean, isn't that a little ironic? It is ironic, but that's the impression he's given. He's trying to tell the people that, well, we have the experience. The reason why we've not been able to fight these groups is because we've not been we've been undermined basically by these foreign forces. So he's trying to sell that as, um, uh, and that was the same thing that happened in Burkina Faso and Mali. The military came out and said, well, the civilians are unable to, to help you. They don't understand this fight. If you support us, we will take the fight to the insurgents. But it's not necessarily the case. It's totally different. Running a country is different from running a military or running a platoon or a battalion. The, these are different things. Sure. But wh- where is the evidence? Or why do people in in uh, uh, Niger and, and Mali and, and Burkina Faso and I guess the Central African Republic as well, where Wagner has pretty much put that government in power, Where's the evidence that Wagner does a better job against Boko Haram, Al-Qaeda, and the Islamic State? Is there any evidence that they... Because my understanding is that they're a criminal operation that's mostly interested in extracting resources like gold and diamonds. To be honest, there's no evidence. But, you know, Wagner is very good, um, especially with the use of social media and portraying themselves as... um, gaining significant ground. So what they've done, especially in Central African Republic, is to carry out like some uh, significant operations. Um, same thing in Mali. So they go to like um, communities um, in Mali, give them a bit of protection, record videos, and, you know, all these things circulate on social media. They portray themselves as um, battle-ready, hardened, um, ready to, um, to take the fight to the insurgents. But it's not necessarily worked. It's not, uh, we've not seen significant outcome. Mali is still basically the same it was even before the French left. So, uh, but they are very good at uh, painting this picture. And um, the, the leaders also, they want some quick fixes. So they give them some quick fixes in some areas and then they sell that to the populace. But there's no evidence that they, they would do a better job. I, I doubt that. So let's turn to your article, uh, Dr. Ajala, at the conversation. What caused the coup in Niger? An expert outlines three driving factors. Just briefly tell us what the three driving factors are. Well, there are five. I just put three main ones. Um, the first two are the things we've mentioned earlier. The first one is economic stagnation. Niger is one of the poorest countries in the world. The economy, um, despite... Um, um, having democracy for 10 years, the economy has not really improved. So that is an issue. The other issue is um, insecurity we've been talking about. And then the other three things I, I um, elaborated on were the issues of ethnicity, especially within the military. 
Um, it, you know, there was, if you can remember, two days before the inauguration of Basum, there was a coup attempt, which interestingly was um, thwarted by um, General Tiani. He was the one who actually led the government forces to end that coup attempt. And I wrote an article then stating how the issue of ethnicity is a big problem even within the military. So President Basum is from the ethnic Arab minority. Um, when you look at the composition of um, the Jay's military, it's predominantly Aousa, and then about 15% of them are Tuaregs. So these are from people from bigger ethnic groups. So they've not really accepted him right from the beginning. And then there were, I don't know if this is correct, there were also um, information that, which came out last week that there was an intended um, um, shuffle or, uh, or intended um, shake-up within the military, and um, General Tiani was going to be removed. So that was another issue which came out um, shortly after the coup that, well, maybe that was why he took the action to do that. So the issue of ethnicity and how this impacts on the military is there. The, the military is um, heavily um, ethnicized, and um, the president coming from a smaller minority group um, has not really helped him to, to get like the numbers of people that could have um, given him support in the military. Yeah, so the second thing I mentioned was um, the, the role of um, foreign forces, uh, which we've also mentioned. So the large numbers of um, French and American forces and how the military feel, uh, they feel undermined by the presence of this, um, of this group. They feel they've not been able uh, to significantly um, um, hold sway in the military. And interestingly, one of the one of the things um is the the, the drone base, the US drone base in Agadez, uh, which I predicted in twenty eighteen was gonna um result in more instability. I, I published an article in the Russi Journal in twenty eighteen um where I stated that um um the new drone base which was under construction at that time was going to result in some um, was going to alter and um, impact negatively on the security architecture of the state. And that is what is happening now. Because um, the drone base, um, the, uh, it was supposed to be owned and operated fully by the Nigerians and their military. But there are still places in the, in the base that they don't have access to based on the information on ground that we had. That, so they're not happy that they don't have the full control. The military, this time I'm saying, I'm talking about the military. They're not really happy they don't have full control of... Um, of of um, the military and um, the security architecture of the country, and then the third issue I mentioned in the article was um, the problem with um, ECOWAS. I feel that um, the inability of ECOWAS to have a stronger stand against a coup in the other three countries emboldened um, General Tiani and the other military guys in the J because. Uh, apart from some sanctions announced um, on these three countries, ECOWAS did not really put its foot on the ground to um, to reject or to oppose this cause in these three countries. So I think um, the Nigerians, the military in Niger, uh, did not envisage they were going to get this kind of opposition. They thought it was just going to be a rollover like in the other three countries. So just in the last minute then, Dr. Ajala, I understand this uranium mines, I think they're owned by the French, aren't they? What resources do the country have that maybe others have their eye on, whether they're French or France or, or China for that matter? Um, um, 
Nigeria doesn't have a lot of resources like that compared to some other countries in Africa. Yes, it's the seventh largest producer of uranium. Uh, they have a bit of gold and um, a bit of, uh, of oil as well. But I don't think it's more of resources. I think it's more of the strategic location of the country. Yes, because Niger um, borders seven African countries. It's the biggest country in the Sahel. Most of the trafficking uh, into Europe happens through Niger. So it's, it's, it has a strategic location, and that is why the European Union, America, France, actually feel having a good relationship with the leadership would be helpful because it helps them to... Uh, to keep an eye on, on, on the Sahel and on some other Sahelian countries. So um, resources play some role, but personally, I, I think it's more of the strategic location um, and not much of resources. But just in closing, you're talking about emigration from the south through the Sahel into Europe, and that's why the Europeans are interested. They want to stop the emigration routes. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Niger has been very helpful in helping them stop this room. Niger used to have the biggest um, clusters, the immigration clusters in Africa, uh, especially um, across the, um, into the Mediterranean, then into Europe. Um, all, most of the bottlenecks were in Niger. Agadez was one. There are other ones around the country. So um, there, there are lots of um, bilateral and multilateral um, agreements between individual countries in the EU and the EU itself and the J to curb this illegal immigration. And um, in the last 10 years, President Sofu and then Basum have been um, excellent partner in dealing with this. So this is uh, a big blow to the European Union in terms of immigration. Well, Dr. Olayinka Ajala, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Dr. Olayinka Ajala, who's a senior lecturer in politics and international relations at Leeds Beckett University in the UK, where he teaches in the areas of peace and security, terrorism and counterterrorism, formation of insurgent groups, climate change and sustainable development, especially in West Africa and the Sahel, in working with communities in the Niger Delta region of Nigeria. His work focuses on how insurgencies are formed and how addressing human security issues could reduce violent conflict. And he consults for the Ministry of Defense in the United Kingdom and has an article, a conversation, what caused a coup in Niger, an expert outlines three driving factors. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews, searchable by topic, and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. Oh,